0: Welcome to the Data Scientist Podcast with Dr. Stylianos Kabakis. Dr. Kabakis is a data scientist, statistician, and blockchain expert with a mission to educate the public about the wonderful capabilities of technologies like AI, data science, and DLTs. These technologies have the potential to transform the world, the economy, and our lives. However, there is too much misinformation around tech, and so most people are just confused about what is true and what is not. Whether you are a CEO, an entrepreneur, or just an enthusiast, the Data Scientist podcast helps you separate reality from hype. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist podcast. We're here today with Daniel Basir. Daniel, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Hey, yeah, my name is Daniel. I'm a machine learning software engineer. I finished up my degree in computer science and math back in 2020. I have worked at Amazon on machine learning platforms, as well as on recommendation systems. I will be moving on to a new startup pretty soon, where I will be working on language models. Besides that, I spent a lot of my time thinking a little bit about AI ethics and governance issues. In that capacity, I have been working as an editor at two online AI-focused publications, Skynet Today and The Gradient, and yeah, hoping to discuss some of that.
0: Great. Thank you, Daniel. I'd like to say that I'm a big fan of The Gradient, so I was not aware that you're actually, that you have some articles published there. So why don't you tell us start with, for those who are not familiar with this topic, what do you think are some of the, let's say, hottest questions, trends, issues in the area of ethics? and artificial-
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that some of the most salient topics that have arisen recently, I guess are, I guess I'll introduce two. I think the first one is this area of algorithmic bias. And we've seen that very frequently in the news, I think. There's sort of two sides to this, right? On the research side, we've had folks like Timnit Gebru who ran things like the Gender Shades Project. And in this research project, she and another researcher found some pretty important findings, which were that a lot of commercial facial recognition systems, so specifically they looked at Amazon, Microsoft, and IBM, While they demonstrated really good performance in terms of accuracy, if you broke down that performance by different subgroups, for example, let's analyze how these algorithms work, what their accuracy is, when we split the data between men and women, between lighter and darker skinned people, they found that consistently these algorithms had a huge gap between how they performed for, for example, lighter skinned men versus darker skinned women. That indicates that If you just look at single metrics like accuracy, that doesn't really tell you enough about how your system performs for different groups of people. So when you start disaggregating these data, you will find perhaps that your algorithm may have learned some biases. And a big problem there is that often, the datasets we use to feed these visual learning algorithms might be dominated by faces, by people who belong to a particular race. So if I feed my algorithm a lot of faces that are Caucasian, right, it's going to be better at recognizing those faces than another face. And you can make that inverse argument. If I feed my algorithm a lot of East Asian faces, a lot of South Asian faces, the same sort of thing might occur in its ability to generalize beyond that. The other aspect of that we've seen is, I think, just in the deployment of these algorithms. So. You know, Tim McGebra's work looked at these facial recognition systems that were commercial from three different large tech companies. Now, there have been another set of films and things like that that came out of this. So, some of the uses we are seeing today, for example, of facial recognition are in policing. Police, you know, might want to identify suspects, and facial recognition actually gives them much better tools to figure out what's going on. So, if we look at this incredibly controversial facial recognition company, Clearview AI, they developed a really powerful facial recognition algorithm by scraping billions of publicly available images from different social media sites. Now, there are some privacy questions there, but at the same time, there definitely does seem to be some kind of social benefit for being able to do things like that. So for example, their founder, Wantamtat, gave an interview where he talked about how they help police identify a child predator who the police themselves couldn't figure out who he was because he was only in a couple of frames of a video and he wasn't even in the foreground he was in the background he was pretty blurry but their facial recognition algorithm was actually able to find a match for this person and they were able to go and arrest him which clearly demonstrates i think a pretty positive use of this but does also kind of raise some concerns about the privacy around bias and facial recognition, things like that. I guess the other that I would point out, and we can spend some more time on this later since I've been going a while on this AI bias topic, would be that of social media and recommendation algorithms and their use there. I think that this became a real public moment, especially when the movie The Social Dilemma came out on Netflix last year. And we saw a lot of folks like Tristan Harris and the activism they've been pursuing to raise awareness about how recommendation systems that try to service content that will make us spend more time online, more time on the Facebook news feed are really not allowing us to spend our time in a way that is good for us. So I think those are two of, I think, the main things that I'll point out here.
0: No, these are some great points. On one hand, you're talking about biases in the way that uh, machine learning systems are trained. On the other hand, you're talking about the implications of technology, I guess, The latter point around recommender systems addicting people to social media is a bit like the debate around sugar, right? So should people be able to drink Coca-Cola, which is very unhealthy, and then Coca-Cola, should it be taxed in in some way? And then maybe should this tax go into the health system of a country, if such a country has has a national health system or, or not? So I think these are some very, very important questions, and I think there are not that many people talking about the latter. I personally feel that most of the conversations around a bias, around AI ethics, are around the bias that algorithms exhibit. And all that being said, why do you think that we can just regulate this whole thing? You know, why, so that you know, we just pass a few like regulations and then the problem is magically solved?
1: That's a great question. Before I get onto that, I do also want to touch on what you were just saying there. I think that first, I really liked your analogy about these recommendation systems versus things like sugar and Coca-Cola. I have come to think about them in much the same way, just that, you know, when recommendation systems are being used, I think what's interesting about them is that the data scientist, the machine learning engineer on the other end, can only pick up so much information about what you as a person want, what your volition, what your desires are. And those are often your kind of first order desires, if that makes sense, right? So to give a very similar analogy to Mm -hmm. what you just said, my first order desire a lot of the time might be to consume ice cream. I really like ice cream. But my second (laughs) order desire is that I don't, yeah, exactly. I do not want to want ice cream all of the time. And that's not exactly coherent. That's not consistent with my, you know, more important volition of living a healthy life right yeah and what recommendation systems are doing there is they're serving my first order volition i can demonstrate to you that i want to eat ice cream a lot of the time i might pass by an ice cream shop and like look in the window because i'm like look at all these great flavors and the recommendation system on the other end is like hey here's like a flavor that is exactly designed to draw you into my shop and have you eat my ice cream but that's not exactly what i want for myself all of the time and so recommendation systems Mm -hmm by giving you that kind of thing all of the time are thereby taking advantage of something that isn't really great for you as a person. So I guess I just wanted to elaborate a little bit on your point there and the way that I've started to think about this. And I also agree with you that I think there's been a large emphasis on AI bias, which is why in the book that I've been writing on these subject. I try not to focus too much on that subject. I think there's important stuff to be said there. But I do think that there are a lot of better places to learn about it, which is why I've tried to focus on a lot of the other governance and ethical issues that I've found in the area. To your question about why we can't just start doing regulation and magically solve all of these problems, I think this is tricky, right? So we've known. For many, many years, that legislation lags way behind technology. Like back in 1920, John Dewey, when he wrote The Public and Its Problems, was talking about this exact same issue. In fact, if you read that book today, it might feel as though he were writing it here and now in 2021, because he is speaking to a lot of these questions about the pace of technology, about the fact that it evolves so quickly that legislation is going to have trouble actually dealing with it, And many different questions there. Now the tricky thing here is there are a couple of problems that get in the way of just legislation really helping technology do exactly what we want it to do. I think there is a problem on the technology side and that technology changes very rapidly and so when we try to describe technology and ascribe certain limits to it based off of what that technology is we do really need to be implementation-neutral, for example. So if I make a piece of legislation that Mm -hmm. is specifically about like generative adversarial networks or something in order to target deepfakes, well, Mm -hmm. the technology underlying deepfakes might change in five years, and that's gonna cause me to update legislation and things like that. So ideally, you want something that's a little bit future-proof in that sense. I think some of the other problems that arise here really come down to the benefits versus drawbacks and incentives. So for example, I think that we don't want a wholesale deepfake facial recognition ban. And, you know, we've seen attempts, both of these. So Ben Sasse, for example, a couple of years ago, put through a deepfake bill in Congress. I don't believe that ever got passed. There have been multiple attacks at facial recognition bans throughout the United States, as well as biometric privacy laws. Now, some of these are doing very interesting stuff, But the existing facial recognition bans we've seen actually still contain loopholes, which is kind of an empirical demonstration of the fact that legislating around this stuff is pretty difficult, I believe. Now, what we are seeing, though, is that I think there are a couple of examples where police found loopholes in these sorts of laws that allowed them to do things like investigate the January 6th riots in the United States and you might see that as a good thing, the fact that police were able to do that, which indicates, A, what I was saying about the loopholes, the fact that this is difficult to legislate, and B, the fact that the wholesale ban of facial recognition isn't a great thing. Leading into that point I was about to make, that there are benefits to some of these technologies that I think makes the legislation tricky because you want to be very careful about the costs you are imposing on developing such technologies. I think that the EU has gone far ahead of the United States in trying to do this. So we saw the introduction of the draft EU Artificial Intelligence Act, which seems like it's going to be probably one of the most strict regulations on artificial intelligence we have ever seen. And already a number of academics have pointed out substantial loopholes, places where the legislation might be totally Mm -hmm. ineffective and potential costs to the EU economy because of that. I think that final point is also very important in that we do want to balance making sure that the technology we are developing works well and the way we want it to, but also preserving innovation. I think that the United States and Europe seem to have pretty different takes on this, where the United States, as I find it, likes to take a lax hand in terms of this kind of regulation. Let's see where the technology goes. Let's find its problems. And then maybe we'll come after it with legislation later. The EU really seems to like to jump out ahead of things, which we kind of find it doing right now. And it's hard to say exactly which approach is better because there's a lot of different ways of defining better. But I think what can be said Mm -hmm. is that we really don't want to develop legislation that is going to make folks really scared of doing groundbreaking research. I think that that's an important thing to preserve. And I think that if we want AI systems to continue to get better, to work well for all of us, we need people to be able to do research, to develop products without knowing what exactly the effects are gonna be. Because if you're so scared by regulation that you are unwilling to put a product out there because you're not 100% sure of what it's gonna do, I think that's a net negative for innovation in the long run. That being said too, there are a lot of geopolitical concerns, that was kind of the last point I was going to raise around incentives. So the United States, for example, has a lot of folks who are worried about the rise of China. And that's been a particular concern in the AI space recently. So Kai-Fu Lee really wrote the book AI Superpowers a couple of years back. And in that book, he had a great demonstration of the difference in practices between the United States and China and the startup scene. And how China, their mass of data and things like that are allowing them to develop really powerful AI systems that they can start using in everyday life. And in some ways, they have jumped out ahead of the United States. And I do think that there are ways, you know, especially on the academic side in which the United States really has preserved its advantage. But there are a lot of folks here who are pretty worried about what that rise looks like. And I think that has some say in the conversation about what regulation looks like and if we should do it at all in those geopolitical conversations.
0: Yeah, I think there are some interesting points there. I think regarding regulation, the EU always tries to overregulate things. Then again, I'm not sure whether that's good or bad. No one does. I guess it's stifles innovation at times. Then again, it has the pull, the leverage to do this. Not sure if we will still have the power to do this in 10 or 20 years, given its stagnant growth, especially if it's overtaken by emerging economies. China has already overtaken it. So it's very interesting to see where this goes. And that being said, do you feel that there's some conversations that should be happening and are not happening right now? And I'm talking about the level of the public. We already discussed about the regulator, but now I'm I'm talking about the public, but also of the people involved in this space, whether they're academics or just technologists.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a lot of different conversations and work that needs to be going on right now. And this is kind of one of the big things that I write about in my book Towards Machine Literacy, about the conversations that I think need to be occurring. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'll paint sort of two pictures here. I think the first conversation, and we're already seeing this start to happen, is this merging we'd like to see of people from the machine learning communities, the AI research space, as well as policymakers and engineers, and those Mm -hmm. folks really coming together to have a consistent form of communication, whereby the policymakers can do their work, they can better understand how the legislation they might be crafting affects the development of AI technologies, And then the folks on the AI side can better understand what are some of the more societal, ethical implications of the work that they are doing. I think people Mm -hmm. on both ends really need to understand what's happening on the other. And by having conversations with those folks together, you know, Congress, for example, in the United States has been taking AI a lot more seriously. We are seeing initiatives from the White House and from Congress that are around artificial intelligence, bringing people together to start discussing how we can craft policy to democratize AI, to make it better for everyone, to think about some of the geopolitical concerns. Those are starting to happen and I think they need to continue to happen. And I think that we need a lot more folks in the AI space who are concerned about these societal questions. Now, the other conversation that I really want to happen and this is what I talk about a lot in my book, is the conversation involving the public. I think that a lot of these conversations about AI and society have been focused between policymakers, academics, engineers, people who are already immersed in that space. But at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. the technologies we build are going to impact real people, people who are not studying AI most of the time. And those people, I feel, aren't having mm-hmm. as much of a say in these conversations we're having right now. And, you know, that does sound really fuzzy. Like, what are these conversations right how we're having right now? What does that look like? I think they happen at all different sorts of scales. But I think the first thing that needs to happen here is a broad public literacy about what AI technologies are, how they work. And I think that there's a lot that needs to be done in service of this. If you look at the statistics, by the time people are teenagers, most Americans have smartphones in their pockets or are using them pretty consistently. And what's Mm -hmm. happening there is you've got a set of powerful AI algorithms in your pocket. You've got a facial recognition system that might be used to unlock your phone. You've got apps that are tracking you across other apps. You've got recommendation systems that are serving you content if you are using Facebook or TikTok or Twitter. And at the stage, when you start to get affected by these technologies, I think is the best time to be introduced to what they are, how they work, at least a little bit, and most importantly, how they affect you. And I think that the more people understand that, the more they will be able to think better about what is actually going on with the developments in AI today. They'll be able to look at how media represents it with a more critical lens, And hopefully they'll be able to start to enter these conversations about the technologies we're building. And as I said, I think this happens in a variety of ways. I think this can happen at the local level about people maybe playing a part in local level legislation about technologies like facial recognition. So in New York City, for example, you know, citizens might want to have a part in the conversation about the ban on facial recognition and people might have different perspectives about the benefits and drawbacks of doing that. Within you know, their work, for example, people might be working in a place that wants to use a technology like HireVue, this automated system that is able to score candidates based off of a video they recorded themselves during an interview. People might have opinions about that. And if they are informed about these technologies, they'll be able to better advocate for their views. So I think there's a lot of ways in which this happens, but I think the thing we're really missing right now is the sense of a broad public literacy and folks you know, from the middle school level to adults really being able to think about these pressing issues and finding ways to really insert their voices in the conversation in a lot of different ways. So that's, I think, the main thing that I hope happens over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, I think these are some great points. So before we we close, when is your book going to be out? How people, how, how can our audience get access to your book?
1: Yeah, yeah. So just to recap, my book is called Towards Machine Literacy. I am currently raising funds for it with an Indiegogo campaign. So you should be able to find the link online. I will share that as well. And yeah, you can also, you know, find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on any of the social media platforms. I will be toasting about these topics pretty consistently and you can learn more there.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you. So for those of you who want to find uh, Daniel, it's Daniel Basir, B-A-S-H-I-R, if you want to find him on LinkedIn. We're also going to be posting links to the campaign on the description of this episode. So if you're listening on Spotify or Anchor, or if you're listening this through my blog, thedatascientist.com, I'm sure you'll be able to find the link. So that was it for today. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thank you, Storianos. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thank you for being here with us. I think this was some very good insight on a very hot topic. And I'm sure that we're going to be hearing more and more about this topic in in the near future. And I do hope that you raise the funds for your book. Actually, after this podcast, after this recording, I'm I'm planning to invest some money as well. (laughs) Let's make this happen because I think the more and more of us should get involved into this conversation and not, I guess, not just us, not as data scientists, but also people from the public, like you said, regulators, common citizens, etc. Mm-hmm. So thanks, everyone, for being here with us. I hope you found this interesting and make sure to visit thedatascientist.com for more content on AI, data science, and blockchain. And I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Make sure to visit the datascientist.com for more content about data science, AI, and blockchain.